and welcome to the Givology Impact Series podcast. Givology is a 100% volunteer-run online giving marketplace for education, which connects donors to grassroots projects and student scholarships around the world. Each episode, we share the stories, advice, and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and changemakers around the world. My name is Helen Tang, and I will be your host for today. This week, we welcome Liz Wilson, who is the CEO and Director of Skip Peru, a nonprofit currently helping economically disadvantaged student, children of the impoverished district of El Porvenir, Peru, realize their right to an education. Welcome, Liz. Great to have you here. Hey. Hi there. Nice <laughs> to be here. Thank you. So why don't we start off by sharing with our listeners the history of Skip Peru. Okay, sure. Um, well, obviously, it could be a very long story, but I'll try and keep it brief. Um, our founders were in um, Peru, in Trujillo, working, mm-hmm. and um, they identified a need within the communities for children to be able to access education, and that a barrier for this were the costs involved in sending children to school. And that was things like buying uniforms, um, shoes, and paying for school supplies. Uh-huh. And this meant that although education in theory was free, that some parents were placed in a really challenging position of not being able to afford those costs and therefore not being able to send their children to school. And so originally that was the key focus of the program as it began was that we started working with 80 children and through providing grants so that they had those school costs met, those children were able to go to school. Um, and wow. yeah, so it was in 2003 mm-hmm. and I arrived in 2008 and have been the kind of CEO ever, ever since. Um, and that is our, our <laughs> brief history of Skip. <laughs> it's a very uh, inspiring uh, history as well. So um, you've talked about uh, several points that Skip Peru has done. What do you believe Skip Peru, like what is unique about Skip Peru that sets it apart from other nonprofits that support quality education for children? Mm-hmm. I think in particular, um, looking at kind of the international development arena for small nonprofits, um, we're using a methodology that is holistic. So what we recognize is that parents are the key influence in the lives of the children that they are bringing up, parents or carers. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to enable children to take advantage of their educational opportunities, we need to not only provide support in their education, providing classes, providing support for the the financial cost of that, as I've mentioned, Mm -hmm. but we also need to work with parents at the same time. So the messages that we bring during our programs are also the messages that are repeated at home. And so in that way, we create a much more sustainable change for those children where the messages are being constantly repeated. Um, And so for this reason, our program works not only with children, but also with parents and carers at the same time. And I think possibly one of the other um, potentially unique elements for a program that is working with a lot of international volunteers as well is our focus on employing qualified local professionals um, in our team. And so our our paid staff team at the moment Mm -hmm. um, numbers 13 local staff. And then we are supported by three international staff as well, of which I am one. And we all work here in Peru 
I'm mostly in Peru. Sometimes I'm international as well, but I'm the only person that isn't based in Peru full time. Um, and obviously having qualified local professionals working with us has some key benefits. Right. Um, which I could talk about, but that was going to be the second question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So why don't we go on into that then? Uh, what, like, how do these key aspects, like, why do you think these are um, so crucial and why, how does it support your cause and your impact then? Sure. Well, so I think in particular, when we're looking at having um, local professionals working with us, it's really important to create the sustainability of the organization. When we bring international professionals to work with us, mm-hmm. they work extremely hard. They're very passionate about the project, yeah. um, just the same as someone who's local, but they will not be as committed long-term to the project, or it's very unlikely that they will be. And this results in a constant turnover and a constant change of people. The strength that you can get from, from working with local professionals is that you can employ, as we have done, the same people in the project for a a larger number of years, which means your institutional memory is greater. Mm. Um, And obviously, the other really important thing is that the people who you are working with, your service users, adults and children, are able to see people from their own culture and from their own community in charge of the project as teachers, as people who are professional. And then that is obviously much more aspirational for them than always seeing international people coming in um, as the leaders. Right. And I imagine this would be like a feedback loop as well, like increasing inspiration and leading more people to uh, look for more education and support education as well. Exactly. Exactly. It gives people something to kind of aim for. They recognize the different kinds of jobs that might be something that they would like to do in the future as well. Mm-hmm. So then when Skipperu was looking for a community to support, uh, how did they ch- uh, decide to focus on the children of El Porvenir? I think the main reason why El Porvenir was chosen by our founders, um, mm-hmm. Julian Duncan, the, the key thing there was that, that they already had a connection with that community. They were already working in this area as volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously these personal connections that we have are great motivators. And so I think... Through that, they developed their passion to ultimately Julie left um, to go and do fundraising. And Duncan stayed for the almost the first three years of the of the project mm-hmm. and got the program established. Um, and so I, I think that those key things, identifying the need um, that was there, but also identifying within this incredible community where we're working, the the real desire for people to improve their opportunities, to make sacrifices so their children could go to school, and a, a real recognition of how important that was. Yes, definitely. And it seems like Skipper has really strong ties with the community and has been a really strong support for the children of this community. So going along with yeah, so going along these lines. Um, with how uh, much Skip Peru has done, I've actually, um, on the archaeology profile for Skip Peru, I've seen uh, a lot of different projects, such as programs in primary and secondary school, a ready-for-school project to provide uniforms, like you said, and um, an extension program to Alto Trujillo. So these programs and other such programs, could you elaborate on these programs um, for these students? 
Sure, yeah. Um, there are a lot of different programs, so it can feel quite complex. Um, mm -hmm. But actually, in, in, in many ways, the program itself is is fairly simple. Um, with the key focus of sending children to school, as I said, we take care of the financial costs, so that's uniforms, shoes, and school supplies. In addition to that, each child in the program attends after-school classes with us, and they also have access to the library and homework help each week. As part mm -hmm. of our classes, each child will also be assessed for behavioural or learning difficulties, and then we will be able to provide support via the psychology program. In addition to this, parents and carers also attend workshops, are also able to access counselling, and we have a finance program in, in economic development where they can access microfinance loans and participate in workshops where they can make products in order to generate a little bit more income. And mm -hmm. essentially that really those are the uh, different services that each individual family working with us are entitled to. Wow. Um, I'm on your website right now. Um, for those of you who are listening, this is um, skipperu.org, so S-K-I-P-P-E-R-U dot O-R-G. And um, looking through the program, there seems to be a lot a lot of other um, programs as well looking into uh, family welfare, such as economic development and um, health and nursery. Uh, could you go on about those as well? I don't think you've mentioned them either. Yeah, sure. Um, so we run a nursery for one- and two-year-old children, and that is actually funded via another non-profit called Pour Les Bebes, mm -hmm. uh, which is a project in France, and they fundraise the money that we need to provide those places to 12 children who participate in lessons five days a week uh, in the mornings. Um, in terms of our health program, that one doesn't run all the time, but we work at the moment with two other non-profits. So again, we're kind of forming partnerships right. to be able to bring these services in. And we do health assessments with families. And one of those organizations, Vivo Peru, also um, provide medications as well. And Two Weeks, which is the project from the UK, they come out and do kind of a full fortnight um, of work with us where they do assessments on children and their parents and carers. Wow. You have definitely done so much for the community. Uh, other than this community, uh, I've also noticed that you've uh, worked with the satellite project at the Solaris School and also Trujillo. Could you elaborate more on that as well? Yeah, sure. So that service was really set up because we identified that the area that we're working in since we started in all the way back in 2003, which is a, a long time ago now, um, the, the area we work in is rapidly changing and the poorest communities are really the most recently migrated. And what we're increasingly seeing is that these areas are now much further away from the community center where we work. And it's very difficult for those children to walk 40 minutes up to an hour to get to our center on a regular basis to participate in classes. And so we formed a partnership with a school. Um, we're actually working with Colegio Alto Trujillo at the moment, which is a, another school. And they only run classes in the morning, which means in the afternoon their facility is empty. And we've been using their classrooms to bring our service to, um, I think we've got about 25 children registered there at the moment um, who are able to attend extracurricular classes 
but closer to their home. Um, and I think that's going to be something that increasingly we would hope to do in, in the area because of, of this issue of people needing to travel too far to make it to the community center. Mm-hmm. And by doing this, you're definitely uh, lowering the barriers for accessibility for education, which is one of the crucial reasons why education hasn't been as uh, spread out as we would hope to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for all these like amazing um, projects, you've had so many. So how do you measure the effectiveness and impact of these projects? Um, obviously, impact evaluation is always a challenge for nonprofits, and um, kind of having tangible outcomes can be quite difficult unless you're doing something that's very clear and coherent, like building a school. Right. <laughs> um, so we use a number of different measures, and I'm sure, like many other projects, we continue to search for the perfect one. Um, but I, I do think that our commitment to collecting data is is something that that we've put a high priority on. So we we look at attendance; that's key. Obviously, we need to know what percentage um, of times the children are coming to their classes, whether or not that's consistent. Um, and really use that information to make sure that the services um, is being engaged in by by the community. Mm-hmm. So our attendance scores are very important. We also do exams at the start and the end of the year. So obviously we're tracking progress there. Uh, we're just writing up our annual report from last year mm-hmm. and the results for the primary education program, um, which we have back, are particularly encouraging um, kids of on the whole, improved, um, which obviously you would hope over the course of the year. Right. Um, That's really, yeah, we have some great case studies of children who began the year unable to read and by the end of the year are reading quite confidently. So, you know, we've definitely seen some great development there and and can really see the impact of some of the one-to-one work in particular that we're doing with children who are struggling. Um, This past year... We also did a big consultation with parents and carers, which we try and do every three years. Um, and we asked a lot of questions about how the service is meeting their needs, um, whether or not they feel um, that the program's working for them, and, and really just kind of explore what their experiences are. And the outcomes from those questionnaires have been quite um, powerful. Um, in particular, the repetition of the word family uh, mm-hmm. is quite powerful. When when families talk about Skip, they say that Skip is like their family. And I think it's a migrant population. About 73% of the parents and carers were not born in this area. And mm-hmm. some 30, 35% don't have any family members living nearby. And that makes them quite vulnerable and quite isolated. And so I think the community that we are managing to create through Skip replicates for them the bond and the closeness that they had with their family members when they all lived closer together. Um, and that really was echoed repeatedly through the answers that people gave about what what Skip means to them. Wow, that's really inspirational. And it's great that you're doing have so many ties to the community and encouraging so much community feedback. Um, which mm. I definitely believe is uh, crucial to uh, making sure that your programs are really strong. Another thing that would be uh, fairly um, important is also fundraising and how you raise uh, money. So how 
has get through um, raise donations, um, consider, um, I, I, or other funds for these programs? Um, so we have a model that over the past, um, well, eight years since I've been there at least, has been developing with kind of strengths through our volunteer program. Um, and our volunteers really are our, our key fundraisers um, and a, a key source of income for the charity. At least two thirds of our income is generated by our volunteers, which is pretty incredible. Um, in addition, we also have a training program for social workers from the UK. So about 10% of our income uh, comes from government grants there in order to train social workers. Um, and then a smaller percentage comes in general donations from individuals um, and companies. And when we have time to write them, grants as well. And of course, um, most recently from Givology. So we really have benefited from the support that you guys have offered. That's been very awesome for us. So you also mentioned that uh, you um, joined Skip through back in, I believe, 2008, right? So I'd like yeah. to actually learn a lot more about your background. So how did you get interested in education as a cause? Um, well, I, <laughs> it's always, um, I, I think for me, probably traveling was a big eye opener um, in terms of getting out there and seeing the world. You realize how much of a bubble you live in, in your in your hometown or in your home country. Mm -hmm. And um, I think for me, it really helps me start realizing things about inequality in a, a way that I hadn't appreciated. Um, I didn't grow up in the most wealthy family. I also didn't necessarily grow up in the poorest in my neighborhood either. But I think when I left the UK and I started to to visit other countries, I realized some of the of the benefits that I had had as a child, in particular with regard to education. Um, and then as you grow up and mature a bit more, I think I realized how powerful my educational experience had been in benefiting me in helping me to understand things quickly and in helping me to get through the the educational process really and out into um into a career and most likely because that experience for me was a very positive one and one that really helped me advance um i wanted to be able to bring that to other children as well yeah. um mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I think that I definitely agree with that. I think a lot, and I think a lot of our listeners would agree as well that education, uh, a lot of us have been, um, met with, uh, some educators who have been so inspirational or so, um, deeply, like, uh, moving or have been so great at what they're doing and so passionate about sharing what these, um, things is amazing with the world with us. And I think that's a lot of, um, one of the main reasons why we're all so um, dedicated to education and why education is so crucial for children as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our own experiences shape us in that regard without a doubt. So it's a, it's a, it's definitely a gift to be able to offer that to other children, um, especially simple things, even like your favorite book, mm -hmm. uh, just being able to put that in the library and know how much joy you got from reading that when you were a kid and think that like someone else is going to start engaging with those pictures and think about it. Like um, <laughs> those things are definitely very motivating for me. Definitely. Then, um, so 
uh, as your role uh, as CEO, how has what is your role actually? Um, what do you do for uh, at this nonprofit, and how has it changed as um, definitely as this non organization has grown and evolved? <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's always interesting the uh, the question of what does the CEO actually do um, because sometimes it's not as tangible as kind of. Um, actually running the education programs or something. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the time I step in. So definitely I, I feel like you have to have an overview so that if, if someone's sick or if something doesn't happen that you're able to kind of pick it up and make sure that you, uh, run with it. I do lots and lots of different things. Um, I try and support the staff I work with by being available and involved in everything to a small degree. Um, mm-hmm. So that's useful. So, for example, this Monday and Tuesday, I have been in a store in the center of Trujillo, giving out vouchers to the families and helping them to choose the things that they want to buy for their kids with the 50 cell voucher that we give for each child. And so I spent two full days just literally in a stationary store, helping people add up lists of numbers and helping them choose <laughs> pens and pencils and, and figure out what they wanted to get. And so that's a piece of what I do and that helps support the social work program. Um, I do supervisions with all of the members of staff that we have pretty much. A lot of what I do, I do the volunteer recruitment piece mm-hmm. and I liaise importantly with the universities internationally who we receive volunteers from. And increasingly those kinds of partnerships are really the things that I spend my time focusing on. Um, so I, I am less involved in the day to day project delivery really of, of what we're doing um on site but then i i also do the training of the social workers that we have who come over from the uk which is an absolute joy they're on uh, their practice placements i'm a fully qualified social worker and so a piece of what i do is training uk social workers so it's a very diverse job yeah Um, i get to do a lot of a lot of very different things Mm-hmm. You seem to have a very good balance of like focusing on like the little details as well as getting the big picture. Um, how do you establish, or how do you not exactly establish, but how do you uh, view the um, overall goals and big picture for Skip the Ruben? Um, how do I view the overall goals? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I guess. I mean, our overall goal is to be able to bring these services to as many children um, as we are, as we are possibly able. I think I view our goal in the project that we have optimistically. (laughs) Um, A great service. I think our families have confirmed that. And I think we have a very, a very close and a very caring bond, both within the team um, of volunteers and staff, and also with the people who we work with. And that's, that's very beautiful. I, I guess the um, the bigger picture, the kind of where do we want to go with that? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be amazing to be able to bring the service to more people, um, to offer more families this kind of support. And I don't, I don't know at the moment. I think we're managing the project as it is, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not we'll be able to increase service delivery or you know complete those kinds of dreams. Um, 
that one, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see whether or not we get there. But for the project that we're running at the moment, um, yeah, that's very tangible. Wow. Yeah, well, we'll definitely be rooting for you then and cheering for the future. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> so turning a little bit from like the future to more, um, looking back in hindsight, what have, um, for the, these many years that you've worked at Skip Brew, what have you learned from your time there? <laughs> um, I got these questions beforehand and, and for a while all I had was that I'm capable of working more hours than I ever thought possible. <laughs> wow. um, that was my first answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I learned uh, when I came out here was that we have all obviously different kinds of people, but for me personally, I learned that the things that motivate me are, are feeling a sense of, of really being able to bring a benefit to other people, to, to really be able to see the impact of a project that you're running, um, and to really do stuff that, that seems to help people who have been given a, a raw deal, let's say, um, and people who are really working hard to try and change their lives and to to try and get through difficult times. And I think for me that, that it's very powerfully motivating being able to help people in those challenging times of need. And that has led to this phenomenon where um where I can work very, very hard. And I think the lesson from that is about finding the things that motivate you. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously, I've seen some, I don't know, probably a TED talk uh, about finding that sweet spot um, where you find the things that motivate you, the things that you're passionate about, you know, and the things that you do well and kind of really uh, finding that as a goal because it's the thing that will give you a passion for what you do and it will drive you. And I, I definitely really believe that. Um, I, I find nothing more tragic than someone telling me that, they hate the job that they do because we have to spend so much time doing it. And I recognize it's a privilege to be able to step outside of that obligation maybe, but for as many people as possible, that that's really the thing that I have learned here more than anything else right. is to, to find a project that you're truly passionate about. Right. So, wow. So you seem to have, you seem to have really know what you're interested in, what you're doing, you have your everything put together. So for the people who are interested in uh, joining a nonprofit, doing something like you do, um, nonprofit management, do you have any advice for those people? Sure. I mean, I think so. I talk to a lot of students who are very much at the beginning of their careers and, you know, they always want to know, like, what kind of things should I be doing? And I think for me, being a manager is is about as I said, needing to step in and be able to understand each component of the project. It's not to say that you need to be the best at all of those things, but you need to be at least passable at all of them. You need to be able to talk to the finance manager and understand what the budget means. But then you also need to be able to go and speak to the education coordinator and understand some of the challenges around teaching the children. Um, And etc. And so I think having holistic experience, like being able to go and get teaching experience, being able to maybe 
take a little bit more gradual leadership experience so that you are in a leadership role, but before you're actually fully responsible for a whole project. I think that probably one of the biggest mistakes that we make um, mm-hmm. is assuming that because someone does their job well, that means that they will make a great manager. And there's a lot of steps in between, I think. Um, doing your job well and being a manager, they're, they're quite different. And so the more gradually that you can take on responsibility, the better. But then also that, you know, whatever you studied at university um, is relevant and will help you, hopefully, potentially. Um, but then you need to balance the bits that you haven't got. And the, the key example for me is I, I had social work experience before I came out here. Okay. I had been a deputy manager and then a manager of a housing project. So I had, you know, a good social work basis and I had a good management basis, but my Spanish was not very good. Oh. And that made things really, really difficult here mm-hmm. um, for at least, I would say, probably the first couple of years. So, you know, you need to identify and be really honest with yourself about what your weaknesses are and then think about how you're going to bolster that. Potentially, ideally, what I should have done is come over here and taught English for a year while saturating myself in Spanish and being able to kind of learn the language that way. And in fact, to be fair, I, I came out here eight eight months before I took over as the as the manager specifically in order to kind of boost my Spanish because I felt like it probably wouldn't be um wouldn't be good enough. Um so yeah, I think taking it slow. Um mm. and probably the other thing, identify great managers and work with them. Learn from them. Identify the things that you really like in a manager, the, the stuff that they're doing really well. Um, and then sometimes you're going to identify the stuff you don't like as well. And then probably leave that job because your manager can have a, a key influence on your job satisfaction on what you're getting out of it, but also what you're going to learn. And you'll, you'll, you'll learn things from the terrible managers. Um, but maybe not what, what makes it worthwhile sticking around for five years. I mean, obviously that's, that's a personal decision at the same time. <laughs> Right. That might also be a suggestion. If it's not going to work out, don't worry to walk away. Right, definitely. Um, then finally, is there anything our listeners can do to support Skip Peru and the children of El Pobrenir? <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, the simple things that people do to support our project are, um, are really donations, some of time. Um, either people do translation work for us. Sometimes people do fundraising for us. Um, sometimes people come out here and volunteer with us. Mm-hmm. And, and those are kind of the key things, really, um, that keep this project going that, and that keep feeding the community. Wow, definitely. Then I'll definitely encourage everyone to look into that. So once again, I'd like to thank Liz Wilson for joining us to talk about our partner, Skip Peru. Liz, if listeners wish to learn more about you or Skip Peru, where can they go? Well, you gave our website address, so that's mm-hmm. skipperu.org, S-K-I-P-P-E-R-U.org. Um, also, please like us on Facebook um, and follow us on Twitter. Great. So this will conclude the ep- uh, this episode of the Givology Impact Series podcast. You can find the rest of the series at soundcloud.com slash Givology. For more information about Givology and how you can help, visit Givology.org. That's G-I-V-O-L-O-G-Y dot O-R-G. And make sure to check out Skip Peru on the website.